This is TREP Wire Week in Review for week ending August 6th. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLM markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Darren King, Head of CMBS. This week, air travel drops after hitting a post-pandemic peak while the U.S. meets the milestone of a 70% adult vaccination rate. And the CDC issued a new targeted eviction moratorium. In economic news, a lot of new data as travel-related earnings highlight a rebound, but separate jobs reports seemed contradictory. The ADP private jobs number was dismal, but initial and continuing jobless claims showed continued improvement. And economic activity in the services sector grew, setting a new record last month. Manus, the debate over the Fed's monetary policy was back in the forefront, as Fed Vice Chair Clarita said that the bank could hit its economic targets by the end of next year. It certainly created a lot of headlines, that's to be sure. But I I think the takeaway from this week is just how complacent the market appears to be right now. When you think about the litany of negative headlines that we saw this week and the really muted reaction we saw from investors, I I think is the story. You you mentioned the terrible ADP number. It was about 50% of what expectations had been less than 50% of the June number, right? Which, which is telling us that this economic recovery is limping along. It's not this 10 weeks of Mardi Gras that some were anticipating a few months ago, a term that we've picked up before. You also mentioned the hints uh, from the Fed chair that interest rates might be hiked sooner rather than later. Sooner is a, is a relative term. He's still talking late 2022, but you know, that's, earlier than than some market watchers are thinking. In that ISM report that was a a new record high, um, there were more hints that uh, costs are soaring, right? More hints of inflation are out there and a growing number of businesses delaying their return to the office. So all of that was met with a collective shrug by investors this week. A couple months ago, when you saw hints of inflation, we saw sell-offs when last year we saw any kind of new variants being talked about there were sell-offs now i don't know if it's the dog days of august uh, people at the beach and the mountains and nobody's really focused on the markets right now or if it's just that the earnings season has been so doggone good that it's just uh, overwhelming any negativity we see but the truth of the matter is all of this was just caught up in the wash this week and investors just really didn't take any of this to heart yeah, the tenure note, you know, as we look at equities, you know, continuing to rise, you had the tenure note going as low as 112, clearly not fearing any kind of imminent rate hike. I think at the point right now, it's taking some of that back to, you know, 122. But you still, you've got a bond market certainly not heeding any of the Fed's guidance or, or statements, and certainly not on par with, with what the equity market is thinking, which, you know, it's been a long time for that. We haven't, you know, it's not something new to these markets, you know, rates continue to, to stay down here regardless of, of fluctuations in the equity market, no matter how much it rises. So at some point, someone's got to be wrong, you'd think. But thus far, I think, you know, both sides have, have proven ways to make money being long, both fixed income, you know, in, in a rally and, and the equity markets in a rally. You know, I talked about the things this week that made the headlines that may have in other times moved the needle. But there are other things looming out there that also have the potential to move the needle that investors are also just really 
not handicapping at all at this point, right? We're talking about probably five levels of tax hikes that in some way, shape or form will hit us over the next six months, right? A personal income tax, a business tax, maybe some kind of estate tax, a capital gains increase, you know, perhaps a gas tax, which has been uh, talked about as well. And, you know, none of that seems to come into the calculus either, that we're still on the equity side paying huge multiples on earnings right now, you know, near historic highs. And, you know, on the, the rebound, the economic rebound side, I still think that the smart money or all the money is on the side of risk on at this point. And to your point, Darren, you know, somebody will be wrong in this whole thing. And at some point over the next six to 12 months, we'll find out whom. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at sort of the, whether it be taxes or just the political climate, we also inch day after day closer to, you know, 2022 midterms. And you take an already dysfunctional Washington and probably make it that much more dysfunctional as as everyone turns toward, do I need to get reelected or who do I want to get reelected? Who in my constituency and my party needs help in their in their primary and then in, you know in their general to hold their seat that even more behavior shifts toward keeping my chair as opposed to even you know pushing an agenda I was on a good conversation this week with an MBA panel they do several of they've been working on several of these all summer long and this particular one talked about tax implications and I would say you know the the real expectation is that there's no way around this. And the best we could hope for at this point is that commercial real estate is not disproportionately harmed by more regulation or more tax than any other kind of alternative investment, right? That's the hope that when you add it all together, right, the capital gains tax, maybe a 1031 alteration, right, general corporate taxes and so forth, that the totality of it doesn't make it any more disruptive to the CRE market than it is to other types of uh, investments that money managers look towards. Yeah, I think the piece I'll add to that as far as you know, where commercial real estate stands, the, the sector kind of has a little bit of the wind at its back from an inflation perspective because it's an asset class that's inflation protected, right? You get to raise rents some asset classes quicker than others, you know, hotels and multifamily in short order, but even in office, uh, office industrial retail, right? Rent bumps are built in, you know, you have the ability to move that cash flow. So there isn't an overly harmful impact to real estate versus other uh, asset classes in terms of taxes. It's actually a sector that's really got an opportunity set to, to really outperform, assuming that the Fed isn't, assuming that the Fed may be a little bit offsides and that, you know, inflation is a little bit more than transitory. Many were watching travel earnings this week to gauge the strength of the rebound and any signs of trouble on the horizon. What did we see? Great week, actually, for commercial real estate, in my opinion, in general. And we're going to talk both about hotel and retail, the two hardest hit segments of the market during the pandemic. But when you look at the earnings we've seen come out in the last couple of weeks, they've been generally better than anticipated. Right. I think that people were expecting a nice recovery of the hotel industry. Some of that was already baked in to the earnings expectations. But several firms this week uh, saw their shares bump up nicely 
as they beat both on the top line and the bottom line. And that was terrific to see as a parenthetical to that, uh, apart from earnings in our delinquency report this week that we released earlier today, the delinquency rate on hotels dropped another two percentage points between June and July and is now 50% of what it had been at its worst moments last summer at the height of the pandemic. So between the earnings we saw this week um, from some very big names and the drop in delinquencies, and in a moment I'll get into some transactions we've seen as well. Um, it was a very nice week for people that may have been, well, certainly for hotel owners, but for those that were still skeptical about the hotel market, I think they can be less skeptical now. I'm filling in for Joe this week, and I just imagine him on vacation going floor by floor, counting occupancy in the hotel, then at the breakfast buffet line, grabbing a cheese Danish, polling everybody. So you here on business or leisure? That is definitely Joe. Yeah, it's funny. Joe, he has told me before, he's, uh, he's a beach guy this week with his family, and he was checking in, asking via text how things were going. And it reminded me of a story he told me, which I don't think ever made it to the podcast, but uh, it was one that just stuck in my memory, was that when he was a teenager, his big thing used to be to sneak under the boardwalk and stick those dollar bills through the cracks and try to get the old people to stop and try to pick up the dollar bill and snatch it away from them uh, just at the last second. And he said one of his really embarrassing moments was he tried it with a five once and the guy was too quick for him. And the guy actually lifted a five from him and it was uh, something, it was kind of like my, my three card Monty loss when I was 14 in New York City, which is a, uh, a lifetime of embarrassment from that, that one silly decision. That's justice, I think, actually. So, you know, you talked about hotel earnings. A lot of the calls were colored by discussion regarding leisure travel, business travel, and how business travel has been coming back slowly, but coming back all the same. And one of the tailwinds that might turn into a headwind is changes in policy, right? So some of the conventions are now uh, going back from in-person to either canceling altogether to next year or coming up with a different uh, plan. And I think uh, we saw that this week with the New York Auto Show. Yeah, that was quite a disappointment. We have said for more than a year that our expectation would be that business travel would lag leisure travel. And that has clearly been the case. Even last week, we talked about how markets like Orlando and San Diego and others, um, in terms of their midweek bookings, were outpacing places like New York and Chicago. And I think we were all counting on getting past Labor Day and starting to see these conferences start, people going back to the office, business travel commencing again. And now you have kind of a double whammy. We've seen, I don't know, five or 10 really big, bold-faced names uh, in the equity markets say they're going to push back their start date from Labor Day to something maybe October or November. And now the cancellation of the auto show, not a great thing for, a, for an industry that was hit hard and we knew was going to be slow to recover. The one piece of that I'll, I'll add that you know continues again to be a headwind is international travel, which was already so far reduced. You know, the, the most recent proposal from Biden was essentially anyone visiting would have to be vaccinated in order just to get in the country, right? I think that was the latest statement. And other other nations 
haven't hit our vaccination levels, including you know, a lot of the you know, Western European countries that we rely on for tourists in places like New York. We're already at a depressed state of that. And if you take out even more folks who can't enter, you know, enter the country to participate, whether it be business or leisure or for events, you know, when do we hit rock bottom? When, when is it just literally throwing in the keys even further that we just can't sustain hotels in New York City, just can't sustain or San Francisco can't hang on to this anymore? Before I get to several hotel transactions that I want to cover, let me ask this of Martha and, and Darren. Are you going to miss the uh, the car show? You guys car guys? Car gals. Gals? Um, Cal- I'll, car people? I, yeah, I would uh, I would definitely go to sit in kind of a gee whiz cool. I have been known to drive a muscle car in my in my history and, and owned one, actually, a nice V8 engine. Wow. And yeah, so it, it is disappointing. And I know Chicago had their auto show. I heard it was scaled down and they had a lot of it outside. And I don't think they had the, the same challenges that New York has regarding some of the restrictions. But yeah, it's a shame that it's not happening. And how about you, Darren? A Taurus or a Maserati? I, I haven't owned a car since 2001. Wow. I've been a New York City, New York City guy my whole, you know, my whole adult life. There just hasn't been a need. I'm not there sure I... I can barely drive at all anymore. <laughs> Yikes. So let me run down a couple of hotel transactions. I said earlier, this was a great week for certain parts of the CRE market. And I'm going to highlight a couple of things that I was really glad to see in terms of the rebound of transactions taking place. The first one I'll highlight, the first three are kind of yawns because they're in markets that are strong, not so heavily hit by COVID. Transactions continue to take place, but there's still positive signs uh, nonetheless, and they give you some benchmarks for where you may want to mark your hotel assets if you're in these markets. So the Atlanta W Hotel in Midtown, that went for $160 million. Um, turns out that that's $370,000 per room. That story comes from the Atlanta Business Journal. As I said, Atlanta not terribly hard hit with distress in the hotel market, but for those in that market, a full service hotel now getting 370,000 per room. Uh, two in the Miami area, uh, the Salino South Beach at 640 Ocean Drive was purchased by an A-Rod backed fund. Um, that story comes from Hospitality Net. It's a 132 room hotel. Also in Miami Beach, the AC Hotel by Marriott, that's a 145 room hotel at 2912 Collins Avenue. Again, Miami Beach has really done well relative to other parts of the market. Now I'm going to talk about two which are in markets that have been just really punished over the last year that saw transactions take place. The first one, uh, this comes from Real Estate Business Online. In Chicago, the 247-room Thompson Chicago Hotel went for $70 million. That's about $285,000 per room. So if you're in Chicago, if you're looking at distressed assets, this is a benchmark for you to see either, you know, what you might be able to purchase if you're looking to buy some of these plentiful distressed assets in the Windy City, or if you're an owner to kind of get a sense of uh, what your property might be worth. Even more impressive in Houston, the Hotel Alessandra, fully shuttered hotel, not even operating, went for $65 million to host hotel and resorts. That turns out to be 291000 per room. I think Houston had more 
hotel operators turning back the keys in 2020 than any other market. So definite green shoots in two markets that were really pounded in 2020. So turning to retail, Simon Property Group saw its sales bounce back to pre-pandemic levels in the latest fiscal quarter. But what were some of the key takeaways? So yeah, Simon really knocked it out of the park. You know, we talk about obviously a mall REIT and I guess now they're a retailer, given how many different fashion brands and the like that they own going from, you know, JCPenney's through Brooks Brothers. But they really, as Martha said, bounced back substantially. Their sales numbers for June were comparable to their sales numbers from June of 2019 and up 80% from this time last year in, in you know in the midst of the pandemic. Their their funds from operations uh, 1.2 billion or $3.24 a share up over 50% from the prior year. You know some other really great signs within it. They signed 2500 leases for over 9.5 million square feet in the first half. 3 million square feet more than they did in the first half of 2019. So, you know, phenomenal numbers, phenomenal performance. I think one of the key things to look at as sort of a, a comparative benchmark for them versus maybe some other mall REITs out there is their average base minimum rent is 50 bucks a square foot, 55 if you kind of include the realized variable rents. So look at that how you will, but somewhere between 50 and $55 a square foot. That clearly is on the higher end for mall operators because frankly, their assets are on the higher end. So as you kind of think about Simon versus any other of the mall REITs out there, recognizing, you know, that $50 number doesn't necessarily compare uh, or does compare favorably to, you know, what you'd see from a Mace Rich or, or the old CBL or a Pennsylvania REIT kind of number. The other interesting parts of that and takeaways, you know, David Simon is always a good guest to have in anything, even on his own earnings call, you know, referring several times to some of the retail uh, ventures that they've purchased as Dead and Buried or Roadkill prior to Simon uh, and Authentic Brands and, and Brookfield's acquisition of, of the various entities. And still certainly in you know finance parlance talking his own book, but pointing out that you know the physical presence of these assets is still what makes them go. You know, they have Simon has the capital with which to you know create that omni-channel and online presence that maybe they didn't before, you know, before they were acquired. But, you know, owning to the fact that having that physical location within, obviously, the Simon malls and as well as other other operators malls is still the key to their success. Uh, the one you know final piece of this, which I just thought was uh, a little eye raising um, and it relates back to CMBS is he was asked by an analyst about the mortgage financing environment and made a comment related to the domain, which was a very recently financed mall in CMBS, $210 million asset, that they, quote, overfinanced it. It's not a term I've heard before. Just to point out, and for any of our listeners who may own it, the servicer uh, issuance data for that pegs a loan at a 46 LTV, a 14% debt yield, four times debt service coverage. So this doesn't appear to be an over-levered loan, but I'm not sure what he means by overfinanced. doesn't sound good if you're a debt owner. We need to get to the bottom of that. You know, overfinanced sounds like over-managing in baseball, when things are going along swimmingly and then the manager walks out and changes the pitcher for no reason and all of a sudden, you know, a 4 nothing lead becomes a 6-4 deficit. When I hear something like over-financed, it makes me think that something was made more complicated than it had to be. So I'll be interested to find out, if we can, 
uh, from Simon or somebody else what the term actually referred to. Yeah, I mean, just ba again, based on, on our data, there's no secondary debt, no mez or anything on this. It actually looked like a, you know, a solid loan, the Austin, Texas million square foot mall with, you know, I think close to $600 a square foot in sales. Looks like a good asset for sure. Just, you know, maybe occasionally at times it might be good to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> I will, uh, I should heed that advice. You know, it, it expands beyond just the podcast uh, into just my broader life in general. So uh, I'm going to write that down while I have a minute. I'll point out two other things I saw in earnings this week that caught my attention. You mentioned, Darren, that Simon is, you know, really upscale class A mall, kind of the higher end. There were also earnings from Mace Rich, which occupies a different part of the mall spectrum, you know, more of kind of the A minus B C caliber mall. They seem to be hit harder during the pandemic than the class A's were. Uh, nonetheless, they too posted great numbers. The firm saw funds from operations, FFO, uh, at 57 cents. That compared with analyst expectations of 44 cents a share. Uh, revenue, 215 million. That was up almost 50 million from 2020's second quarter. Of course, we had a big rebound, so that was to some extent expected, but it was still 30 million over what consensus estimates were calling for. Uh, in addition, they said occupancy jumped by almost a full percentage point over the last three months. So this rebound that we're seeing, you know, not just limited to the class A, which is nice to see, you know, the B's and the C's have really been pounded, a word I seem to be using a lot uh, over the last year. Another one we saw, which was nice, although it had a footnote to it that was a little bit worrisome, Tanger Factory Outlet Centers announced that foot traffic at their destinations had been higher during the last quarter than they had been during a comparable time in 2019, which is another part of the market, right? We talked about the A part of the market, the B and C outlet centers uh, in completely different part of the market. So they too seeing more foot traffic than they were seeing before the pandemic, another incredibly great green shoot. The one concern that they put out there in their remarks was that only about 50% of the leases that are set to expire this year have been renewed at this point. So that's something that we're gonna to have to watch uh, over the remainder of the year in the first half of 2022. But from Simon to Mesa Rich to Tanger, just a lot of good news out there. And another piece of news unrelated to earnings, Foot Locker filed a lawsuit. What's going on there? That's an interesting one. Basically, they are in the Palisades Mall. I think they have two different stores in the Palisades Mall. That's the mall that if you're in New York and you go over the Tappan Zee Bridge on your way to upstate New York along 87, it's a real eyesore, but it is a big mall. It's one of the biggest malls in the country. Over the last four or five years, it's lost a lot of tenants. Uh, it's lost JCPenney, it's lost Lord and Taylor. And the contract with Foot Locker and the owners of the mall were such that if they lost a certain number of anchors and were left with X number of anchors with more than 50,000 square feet, their rent became a fraction of sales. And that kicked in uh, at one point, and that's what they were getting billed uh, for a certain period of time. But the owners of the malls came out and said, 
well, we've now backfilled some of these spots with dicks and others that you should go back to paying full rent. Uh, Foot Locker came back and said, no, we shouldn't because these parcels are less than 50,000 square feet. So they took the owners of the property to court because they were afraid that the owners of the Palisades Mall were going to cut them off and actually kick them out of the mall. And the Foot Locker wants to keep a presence at the place. They want to pay the percentage of rent and they don't want to be kicked out. And on the other side of it, the mall owners are trying to squeeze them to either pay the full boat or to get rid of them. So that's a little inside baseball for those that are either retail operators or mall owners, something that, and I think we'll see more of this, you know, as time goes on, that there'll be more of this litigated as people try to get to the bottom of what exactly is fair and what does the contract say? Yeah. Talk about your twilight zone, right? A landlord, a mall landlord suing to get rid of a tenant and the tenant actually, you know, countersuing or involved in a lawsuit to actually keep their lease. I don't think we see that too often. <laughs> I'll go back to the car thing. So Darren, are you a, a sneaker guy or a, a loafer guy? <laughs> a running shoe guy. You're a running shoe guy. Well, Can't say I do car. too much. Yeah. Can't say I do too much, you know, in terms of the, you know, buying the Steph Curry's or who, whoever else's, you know, brand is hot. So turning to office, LinkedIn has reversed course and says that most employees can now work from home forever. Join the long list, right? We've, we've seen a lot of this going on. Either don't come back after Labor Day or don't come back at all. They did put that parenthetical in there, which is if you're not going to work in San Francisco or New York, don't expect to make San Francisco or New York salaries. Right, that always seems to be um, Ouch. part of the contract. We did mention in our Trepwire this week that LinkedIn does have a very big presence. In fact, they're the sole tenant at a big San Francisco office. Uh, their lease goes for a considerable period of time. It's got several years to run. So when things like this come up, we do mention to our readers and our, uh, our clients, this is when you want a footnote, right? As you get into that 2023, 2024, time when the loan is getting closer to maturing, you want to know that uh, is this a problem waiting to happen or is this something which is going to be easily refilled should um, LinkedIn not pivot to something new? Yeah, I still look, uh, I may be on the other side of this. I think it's permanent until it's not anymore. I still see a lot of this as potentially just reactionary to the time we're in. Some firms were always going to come back in full and hybrid, a handful saying, you know, fine, work remotely forever. You start to hear less of that as, you know, vaccinations got rolled out and people felt safer. Delta spikes numbers in places and all of a sudden you're hearing the reaction again. And I think tech companies more than others um, are going to throw things out there to be attractive to their employees uh, and be attractive, frankly, to potential new employees, which you know, are, as we've seen, you know, very difficult to hire in this market. So it would not shock me that permanent lasts for a year and then it's slowly bring people back in or your new hires are part in office. And this is a negotiating point of, of these things. I will ask the question sort of tongue in cheek and right, all these Salesforce, LinkedIn, they all put their names on the side of these buildings. What happens then? What do you do with that, with their branding once they go away, if they go away? Well, the funny thing was years ago, the best thing that you could short was 
firms that had put their name on the side of a football stadium, right? For a long time, that was the, the kiss of death, you know, for dot-com companies that had put their name on the side of football or baseball stadiums. You know, whether this becomes true of offices as well, I, I don't know, but offices have been named for a long time. So I think that's a, a trend that will endure, unlike the dot-com uh, stadium naming fad or the dot-com boom in general. Uh, turning to the other side of the coin, we talked about people not coming back to the office in LinkedIn or, or delaying their return. You know, we listened to the Vornado earnings this week, and just as Boston Properties, were, you know, their executives were really, really bullish two weeks ago, Vornado was just incredibly bullish as well. They talked about just incredible demand from the likes of Apple and Google and Facebook for their space. They, for those that are not in New York, uh, the firm has been a huge acquirer of space around the Penn Station, Madison Square Garden corridor. And they put Facebook in there uh, a year or two ago with a big lease. And they were really gushing about how much demand there is for, from tech companies for that particular corridor. And that's also near Hudson Yards and Chelsea area, which has been very popular for fang names as well. But it goes to the point that Darren made a few moments ago, which is it's a trend until it's not a trend anymore. And if you're listening to Vernado, they're telling us the trend is going to be really short-lived, that these firms are coming back. It may be a, a blip after Labor Day, but they are expecting to be, you know, hiring thousands of tech workers month after month after month going forward. Yeah, I think this also is a sign of certainly their confidence and the continuing trend toward moving to class A assets, right? It's when you think about New York City and San Francisco and other gateway markets, it's the class B and class C. It's the, you know, the building that has two elevators versus having four elevator banks. Um, you know, it's all the the ability to upgrade and, and do all the things we're going to want from a health and safety standpoint uh, and the amenities and outdoor spaces and things like that. Vornado can do all of that. Um, right, they have the capital and and the quality of the assets that they acquire and own provide that. So they're, I mean, I think they're making their bet, probably rightfully so, uh, on the fact that not only is there going to be great demand, but it's going to be demand for their kind of Class A space. The big tell for me for what was B and C back in the day was: did they still have that mail slot? When you got off the elevator, was there that mail slot right next to the elevator where you were expected or you could? you know, throw in your letter rather than go to the post office or, or uh, walk to a mailbox or so forth. And you still do see them in some class B buildings from time to time. My apartment building has that mail slot. Does it still operate or have they taken it? It, it absolutely operates. I'm, a, I'm sometimes hesitant to use it and I'm not sure how, how often they look in there where I'll just go to a mailbox if I actually need it occasionally. But yeah, still about, got it. About 15 years ago, there was a story, maybe, maybe longer, that somewhere in the Rock Center area, they had told people to stop using it, and but they didn't tape them over. So people kept using them, but they never stopped. They stopped checking. And by the time they figured out that this was a problem was years later, and the mail had backed up to the third floor, and they actually had to take out a wall to remove all the mail that had been sitting there in, uh, in this slot for, for a decade and a half. So, so the checks so in the in, mail in wasn't case, a lie. Uh, Darren, you know, I hope that, you know, they're not foreclosing on your, uh, <laughs> your condo because the, uh, or, you know, or, well, you're not going to get evicted. We know that. 
right? If the check's not in the mail, but checks you know, in the mail <laughs> on the third floor. So deal of the week takes us to Houston this week. Yes, two Houston mentions. So Houston, we stated a couple minutes ago, kind of ground zero in the misery index when it came to hotels, lots of defaults, lots of givebacks, lots of revaluations, negative equity, the whole thing. Um, also part of that market has been a really, really heavily hit office market, tons of sublet space. There've been some very big losses among trophy assets in Houston over the last five years. Um, so any lease in Houston, in my estimation, is a good lease. And in this case, it garnered the deal of the week. Uh, Aspen Technology, um, they're a Boston-based software operator. They signed on for almost 80,000 square feet. Uh, it's a lease renewal at 2500 City West Boulevard in Houston. Wynn Haggerty Jr. and Vince Strake of CNW and Dennis Taro of the Petrinley Group, which owns the property, work together um, to get this deal over the, uh, the finish line. So as I said, this is not a CMBS asset, but any lease or any lease renewal in Houston is a good one. And this one is of decent size. So congratulations to all those that got that over the finish line. And the must know of the week. I have two must knows of the week. The first one, Project Falcon, which uh, is code name for something that economic development agencies in Texas are working on to lure Wells Fargo for a new headquarters. Uh, this was reported on by several different publications last week. Right now, Wells Fargo is looking primarily at Las Colinas. The size of the parcel they're looking for would be about 400,000 square feet. There is a CMBS loan that has some Wells Fargo space. It seems to be a servicing operation of about 100,000 square feet. We'll write about that in Trep Wire probably on Friday morning or Monday morning. But otherwise, this looks to be all new space. Wells seems to be focused on the urban center of Las Colinas uh, near the Irving Convention Center. It's unclear if this is uh, a new development they're trying to take on like JP Morgan did a couple of years ago or whether they'll be taking on existing space. But if you're somebody in that area that has either space or land uh, and you hadn't seen this story out there, the eagle has landed to use the cliche. Project Falcon is out there and uh, you may wanna get on that because there's a, a, a big lease or a big development to be had. Uh, one other that I thought was kind of interesting as well, this came from the Triangle Business Journal. Uh, Comerica Bank is looking to really build up its Southeast strategy. They're looking to um, establish big offices in Raleigh, Winston-Salem, and Charlotte. And they're starting by looking for new space in Raleigh. It's unclear how much space they're looking for but it is something that they plan to go really all in. They really want to grow that presence. You know, they're a bigger presence in the Southwest and a little bit to some degree in the upper Midwest, uh, but they want to attack that North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia market. So if you're in that Winston-Salem triangle area or Charlotte, uh, a, a call to Comerica might be uh, on your to-do list. 
Turning to multifamily, the CDC extended an eviction ban until October 3rd. And I know we talked about this last week because it expired last Saturday. And it looks like they're hoping that the long delayed rental assistance gets in the hands of those that haven't been able to get it. And interestingly, a, a side note, the National Apartment Association sued the federal government for $26 billion in monetary damages due to the ban. So this continues to play out. Is there a more distinct piece of dysfunction than what we've seen with the eviction ban over the last three months, right? You know, Joe was joking around, you know, last week about, about DMV, but this is a little bit like DMV on steroids. When you think about how many things have gone wrong, right? And I'm going to run down the litany and I'll let Darren kind of talk about the economic implications after that. But the Biden White House waits till the absolute last minute to wait to tell Congress to do something, right? Congress is on the precipice of leaving for vacation. They already know that the Supreme Court has ruled this unconstitutional. They have other methods for addressing this problem in the, in, to the tune of $50 billion, which is out there for rent relief, yet they've only gotten out $3 billion of it. And I believe not a single dollar in New York right, if you think about that. And we're extending it again without any real income testing, means testing, right? If you talk about something which has been so mismanaged right from the start, this is it. And I'm not really talking about the human side of it, right? We need a safety net in this country and we need the ability for those that, you know, kind of hitting the rocks economically to have, you know, some kind of safety net but if you're going to have a safety net, have it work. And, and this has just been one mistake after another, after another, after another. And, and I do think that it's one of the reasons that people just kind of throw up their hands when they look at what's happening in Washington and, and try and wonder why things can't get done efficiently ever. Yeah, that, this thing suffered from practicality problems, like from the moment it started, right? It, like you said, it, it was a good idea from a safety net for people, even some of the merits of it from actually delivering the money to the landlord to cover the back rent owed by the tenant. And therefore, then you kind of give the tenant a chance to stay in, right? That had the right metrics too. You weren't just handing money to a tenant who may or may not put it in their pocket. You obviously have to worry that the landlord won't then go and evict once they get the money, but you were, you were then in there supporting, you know, the person who is owed the money, except you know, from the federal government on down to the local bureaucracies that have to then dole it out, like you like you pointed to, Manus, only three billion has gotten out the door. And there's a stack of applications on the desks of, of these local bureaucrats to do it. And then, you know, I saw a, a survey the other day that something like half of landlords didn't know it existed. Right? How are you gonna use something that's literally sitting there, forty six billion dollars, and half of landlords in this country don't know it's there. And this is Right, this is an issue that's affecting not Class A in Manhattan uh, or San Francisco, again, gateway cities. This is Class B, Class C workforce housing type of people who are making under $50,000 a year or were making under $50,000 a year before they may or may not have lost their, their jobs. They're the ones who need it. And their rents 
you know, to those landlords are often, you know, not the public REITs and things like that. Some of them certainly are, but it's a lot of more local uh, landlords, mom and pops who own 10 or 15 units, things like that. You know, you're literally in a place where the two people who need it most and it's there waiting for them can't get their hands on it. I, I just have this image now, it's just coming to me now. We talked before about the mail slot and mail piling up three floors long. I have this image now of Washington, like we passed so many of these bills and you hear reports of money not getting out the door to any of these programs for which it's been targeted. And I picture it to be like the mail slot. It just, we're just funneling more money in and it's just never coming out the other end. It's just piling up and piling up and piling up. It, it's a shame because if this thing had been tailored correctly, you know, it could have helped the landlord, it could have helped the tenant, it could have been done cost effectively, uh, and it could have been humane. And instead, it, it's none of those things. Yeah, and we just leave ourselves trying to, you know, use the CDC as a, as a way to just extend this eviction moratorium. And I think the part of it that really bothers me the most is you're going to wind up with evictions uh, at the end of all this. There's going to be a date where you can just no longer do it anymore. So you're going to be putting people in difficult situations out on the street, not a good solution, and landlords still aren't going to get the rent that they were owed. And yet the money is still sitting there. You know, I, I, I think about it from the perspective of if you could actually get this money into the hands of landlords, they have a much easier decision, much better decision to be made, which is if I can get my back rent, if I'm owed three months back rent and I can actually get it from this program and my tenant in an economy that's improving in a job market that's improving actually can land a job to continue to pay it. I am better off as a landlord in that situation than evicting the tenant, getting a new tenant, because if it's three months back rent, the average monthly rent has to be up by 125% or has to be 125% of the old rent in order for me to make up the difference of, of you know the, the bad debt loss that I've got. So this is a solution for all sides if we could just you know get the checks written. Right. For people at the lower end of the economic spectrum, there is the potential for a quadruple whammy right, coming down the road. And that quadruple whammy looks like this, right? Unemployment benefits and at the same time, the eviction ban ends at the same time that more restrictions come in economically, which we shut down restaurants and other things at a time where we're having relief fatigue, right? That people say we're not spending another trillion dollars to pass more stimulus checks and, and, and stuff like that. And this was really avoidable. Uh, a lot of this stuff had it been thought out better. And, and instead we took the fire hose method with not a lot of details and not a lot of oversight. And, you know, there's this potential in six months that, you know, people at the lower end of the spectrum are really uh, back to square one. Hate to see that. So last week we gave a sneak peek of our secondary metro area markets that are the top for commercial real estate investment. And we've released that this week. So Darren, take us beyond a sneak peek, if you would. Sure. So, uh, Secondary MSAs, uh, we define by employment, you know, in that market, somewhere between, you know, one and two million, give or take a little. Uh, so those kind of define the overall set of, of secondary market MSAs. So teased last week was that Austin, which had been in the top spot, fell, you know, fell all the way down to fifth. Um, I also kind of wonder about Austin when, uh, when it gets to bump up to primary MSA, given the, you know, the influx of uh, employment in that market, but that's a, you know, a conversation for a different day. 
taking in the top spot this year was San Jose, uh, which includes Sunnyvale, Santa Clara, you know, kind of a bit of a tech hub itself. San Jose managed to take the top spot despite actually performing pretty poorly in one of our categories, which is the population growth rate. It's one of the cities, one of the areas that actually saw migration away from it. But you know, the other characteristics, the performance of loans, the amount of collateral, the delinquency rate, all those things just performed so well that it made up for uh, any population migration issues. Now, moving into the second spot up from number six was Vegas continuing you know a good trend in terms of that city both in terms of performance of its you know office market throughout property types has actually held up pretty well rolling out the top 5 you have Sacramento, Charlotte and Austin which we mentioned and then so I'll, I'll toss in number 6 being Nashville, Tennessee shout outs we had some newcomers in our list John D who commented on both episode 90 and 91 and loved the discussion on the office shakeout Lucius actually guessed wrong on our trivia t-shirt challenge, but he did taunt you to go into some deeper tracks next time. So, you know, maybe you should get it right before he, uh, he goads you into making the question harder. I don't know. We should send Lucius a consolation prize. Maybe one of those, you know, really used t-shirts that Darren runs in, you know, he shouldn't walk away empty handed, but if you get the wrong answer, you can't get a, I like that. A brand stinking new crisp blue Treppod t-shirt. No, that's I, that's not allowed. I like Maybe that. I can go for a run in the Treppod t-shirt and then we can give it to <laughs> and then you can there do you that. Go. He did ask uh, also for more grammar lessons, so I think we're in trouble there. Susie sent us a boots on the ground view of the Destiny Mall, which I think was actually uh, very valuable. She, she was actually up there for her 12-year-old's baseball tournament and walked through the Destiny Mall, noted that every fifth or sixth storefront seemed empty, foot traffic was light, and the busiest place seemed to be the Dave and & Buster's, and she actually took photos to share with us. Yeah, those uh, AAU tournaments, those basketball things, I, I don't miss those. A lot of greasy food, a lot of sweaty gyms, a lot of bad officiating. One of the lowlights for me was going to one of these team dinners after four hours of bad officiating and, and sweaty gyms and watching a guy who recently had had like a triple bypass, try to body the blooming onion. Oh you know, that was like, you know, just, just too much. That was time uh, to call for the check. That's a visual. Yeah. And we did have uh, a number of winners to the question. And if I recall, Manus, you quoted, I went from Phoenix, Arizona, all the way to Tacoma, Philadelphia, Atlanta, LA was the, quote and uh that was rocking me by steve miller and a number of you got it right tom o matt o amar m brent e chris w and uh they they get a lousy trip podcast t-shirt congratulations and thank you for submitting your answers bb dogged tenacity said they were a little worried that manis wasn't more bullish on the delta variant brown shoots so i don't know manis maybe Need to work on that a little bit. Should we give uh, another trivia question this week? Give him another shot. This is just for Lucius. You can't dance and stay uptight. If you come up with that one, we'll send you a t-shirt. We're going by the honor system. You can't Google that. Yeah, exactly. You got to like, you know, sit down, have a glass of wine, hum it out. It's not something for anybody under 40, but it is one of my favorite songs when it comes up on the, uh, the treadmill. 
All right. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep that one as, as a take two. And with that, we'll close. Joe, I hope you enjoyed your vacation. And thanks to our producer, Haley Keene. Join us next week as we review what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment or an answer to one of our trivia questions, send an email to podcast at trep.com and visit trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.